0: Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman,
1: And I'm Brent Helt. In this episode, we'll talk about Lords and Ladies by Terry Pratchett.
0: Yeah, this is very exciting. This is a Discworld novel. It was published in 1992, and this is a bonus episode. It's an extra episode that we're doing because it was commissioned by one of our really awesome Patreon supporters, and we're so grateful for that type of support. So thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you. We really appreciate all the support that our patrons give us, not only for these special episodes um, that where you can suggest specific things for us to read or vote on other things that we might choose among uh, for this podcast and the other ones in the network, but also just for helping us maintain the costs of the regular shows we do as well. Uh, hanging out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast would be very different if we didn't have the support of the Uh, patrons, it would probably just be Glenn and I chatting on the phone and never recording it at all. And uh, also, Glenn would never edit that conversation, so I would sound far worse. (laughs) Yeah, we we all would. That's exactly
0: right. That's exactly right. Well, let me talk about what we're going to do in this episode. So we're going to start out by talking about the setting and the characters. We'll give a bit of a plot synopsis for people who haven't read the book before or haven't read it in a long time. We're also going to talk about some of the the themes and motifs. We've each picked one to present to the other for discussion. But the big thing here, the reason we're doing this book on this show, on Hanging Out with the Dream King, rather than on ATAS, where we normally talk about speculative fiction novels, is that Hey, this book is an adaptation of A Midsummer Night's Dream by William Shakespeare. And so we're also going to be doing some comparison with the source material with the Shakespeare play. But also, obviously, we are going to have to talk about how this compares with what Neil Gaiman has done in the Sandman. And of course something we should probably say right away for people who may not be aware is that right Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett have been collaborators. and uh, it seems clear to me that they also were talking about a midsummer Night's Dream in the the early 1990s, the late 1980s. and I, I would like to believe, I think it's kind of my uh, my head canon, that, uh that uh, both this book, Lords and Ladies, and then also that issue of the Sandman grew out of some kind of dare or bet or something along those lines. But all right, let's talk about Discworld. So Discworld is a pretty huge phenomenon in fantasy. I mean, it's 41 novels. These were published between 1983 and 2015. And I remember seeing these on the shelf, Brent, at our Barnes & Noble in the mid-1990s, right? There were, I don't know, about 15 of them, I think, on that shelf at that point. They were all mass markets. I was never impressed by the covers. The covers were, as I recall, anyway, just a kind of solid color with like the image of an object on them or something like that. And so they didn't convey any sense of setting to me, which is what, you know, I'm going to fantasy fiction for is that sense of setting. And so I don't think I ever even flipped through one of these books. And I definitely have never read one until now. But Brenda, I wonder, besides standing at that shelf in the Barnes & Noble with me, you know, circa 1994, what has been your experience with Discworld and Terry Pratchett?
1: Yeah, I mean, I had a similar experience when I was younger that you did, obviously, because I was standing next to you at the Barnes <laughs> & Noble or the Anderson's Bookstore or wherever. And... The covers were kind of twofold. They either were a couple words and an object or they were just like vague high fantasy with lots of bright colors. What they were not that my uh, preteen and teenage kind of uh, boy mind craved, they were not foreboding. There was no, uh, there were no uh, angry lances. (laughs) It was a lot more uh, happy and bright. And that was kind of my sense of Discworld was that it was something that A lot of people seem to like, but no one I actually knew. And, uh, you know, you and I grew up in a world that was pre the internet kind of dominating the, the landscape in terms of you finding people with similar in, in, uh, interests and also people recommending things to you so I didn't know anyone who read any Terry Pratchett I didn't know anyone who read any Discworld so I became a little bit more aware of the Discworld once I had read Good Omens but I still never checked it out until a few years ago when I happened on a sale copy of a random Discworld book um thud which was one of the watch series uh and i read it and i really liked it it was uh there's Terry Pratchett gives me humor that I want. I have to be in a particular mood for that humor, but I, I it works for me when it works for me, which we'll talk about as we go. I do have to say, one of the things that I think put me off about Discworld when I was younger, in addition to the, you know, lack of foreboding Sauron across the mountains <laughs> and, you know, desperate times and cavalry charges, was also that there were just so many of them, as you said, 41 novels, and that's just an insane number. And even the novel we're talking about today, it's the 14th novel in the Discworld series. And that's to tell someone, yeah, you should read this book. By the way, it's the 14th in a series. And something that I didn't fully appreciate then, but um something I've increasingly appreciated is while – Many of the characters do carry over from novel to novel. They are really written, and I think quite well, to be standalone, in which I think you would get more out of it if we had encountered some of these characters before. Granny Weatherwax, you know, has multiple appearances before this. This is the fourth witch's novel with fourth witch's stories. But I think that it works fine that this is the first time I'm coming upon Many of these characters.
0: Yeah, that was my experience as well. Even though Pratchett has has said in interviews that this is one of the few Discworld books that he felt like you should have read the previous books for, at least you know within the the witches series, and he even gives us this little uh, pre see at the the beginning to catch us up. But honestly, I have to say I don't feel like I needed that, and I don't feel like I really missed out on anything, but because I just jumped into this in the middle, and to me, that's a real strength of this book.
1: No, I think it works real well. I and mean, in some ways, you know, to liken to things that some of our patrons might be able to easily latch onto, um, you know, as fans of Star Trek. Uh, This reminds me of episodic Star Trek, right, where a book is an episode where this is the planet they get to. And if, yeah, if you've dealt with Spock and Kirk or uh, Riker and Picard before, maybe you'll get more out of the nuance of whether Data understands jokes at this point. But you don't need to know that at all. And literally, you can just watch a random episode of most of, you know, original series and Next Generation Star Trek, and it's fine. You can jump in at any point. So I think what Terry Pratchett did, and we can talk more about this, but just kind of a summation off the top is that I want to make sure listeners understand is you can certainly read this as standalone, but also the fact that he has 41 novels and he's created sub areas means you can kind of just pick and choose as you want. And it indicates if there's characters you like, then the other books in that series may likely have the same characters recurring. So you get to spend more time with them, which I think is actually should be thought of as freeing as opposed to restricting your readership. And that's something that I just didn't understand when I was looking at a button on the cover of something with three words on it and being like, yep, that's really bright colors. I think instead (laughs) – Uh, I'm going to read The Dark is Rising because it's got the dark and it's got rising and it looks menacing. And that's a good novel as well. I'm not – trying to poo-poo that. But it's it's a different flavor and it, it's a harder sell. But I think that Lords and Ladies and the Discworld stuff is really something that uh, is very approachable. And a lot of it's very approachable from a fairly all-ages standpoint, too.
0: Yeah, Discworld certainly was not marketed at us, who I think were among the cadre of people who were really approaching fantasy from the world, maybe not from, but through the world of gaming, right? That there was a sense in which, for us, reading fantasy novels was uh, part of our gaming experience. Experience. And I would not describe Discworld as, uh, or at least not this novel, I guess it's, it's my only sample size is this one book, but it would, you know, it would not describe it as something that, that scratches that kind of, uh, uh, fantasy adventure itch, although there is quite a bit of that here in the book, and and maybe now is a good time to transition into speaking a little more specifically about this book. Though, actually, I suppose before we do that, let's talk about Discworld a little bit more broadly as a fantasy setting. These are fantasy books that are set in a secondary world. That world is called Discworld, and it is called that because it is flat and circular it's a it's a disc and it's a world right it does exactly what it says <laughs> on the box there which is brilliant but i do think that Even people like me, who have never read a Discworld book before now, know that Discworld is a disc on top of four elephants, who in turn are standing on the back of a turtle, because this is a joke that has permeated pop culture in the form of uh, just illusions, and really, I think, in every medium as well. And so everyone has heard this somewhere, and even if they don't know that it actually refers to Discworld, people have heard this joke. But Discworld is... A big world, right? You even referred earlier, Brent, to different areas of it, right? Pratchett wrote stories in about a dozen different settings. This story is set in Lancre, uh, which is a very small country nestled in some very high mountains, but it is still basically southern England. Uh, Pratchett himself has said that Lancre is more or less a mix of uh, the Chiltern Hills, where he grew up, and the Mendips, where he lived as an
1: adult. Well, the only other thing that I think is important to know geographically, which it's not that important, but just to be aware of the only other setting that really gets mentioned is uh, Ankh-Morpork. And Ankh-Morpork is it's essentially fantasy London. And so we've got fantasy London and we have some characters who are in fantasy London who then travel to uh, fantasy some sub kingdom within southern England.
0: Right. And we're going to talk about some of those characters. In fact, some of those characters were uh, were some of my favorite characters here. But yeah, that's that's really all that I think that we need about the geographical setting. So yeah, let's go talk about those characters. And because this book is funny, it requires a pretty big cast of characters. There are a lot of characters here. But let's start with the, the three witches, Brent.
1: Yeah, so the three witches we have are Granny Weatherwax, uh, Nanny Og, and Magrat Garlic. And they're kind of stereotypical witches. They're a little coven. Um, and this is the fourth book they're in. Uh, Magrat is the youngest one, um, and is often seemingly at odds with, uh, the older, particularly Granny Weatherwax as well as Nanny Og, but they all have kind of different personalities that are s- not completely mapped to but kind of similar to when we've talked about three witches before of the crone and the mother and the maiden uh, archetypes um, and they're off on an adventure and here they are returning to specifically uh, to Lancra um, and Margaret has a prior relationship with the king of Lancra um, and that kind of is one of the things that kicks things off in the book itself.
0: I wanted to ask you, Brent, about the this notion of the the mother, the the maid, and the, the crone here, because that certainly seemed to be something that was happening here. But I had a hard time telling whether or not Granny and Nanny really had that much of an age difference. Uh, you know, Granny is called Granny. Nanny is old enough to have adult children, but I still felt like Nanny was supposed to be the the mother here. In this, was that your sense as well?
1: Yes, my sense was that Nanny is the, is metaphorically the mother, but also literally the mother because she has many, many offspring, many of whom we encounter in the novel, uh, while as we discover that Granny does not have any offspring, uh, there also is once or twice where there's a reference that, uh, Granny had chosen Nanny to teach witchcraft to. So, I never get a sense that there's a huge disparity in age between Granny and Nanny, but clearly there's at least some disparity in terms of the amount of time they've been a witch, um, in that Granny definitely preceded Nanny by some amount of time, um, and Nanny just, because she is, has so many children, uh, also then has the relationships with many of those children and stuff, and very much is literally the mother in a way that, um, Granny and, uh, Magrat are not literally the crone and maiden.
0: And and Pratchett deals with a, a number of other witch tropes here as, as well. And, and one of them is that they do ride around on, on broomsticks, and there are some physical comedy gags that involve those broomsticks. And something else maybe we should say about them before we move on to go talk about the king that you mentioned there, Brent, is that although we have not read that book, they have previously appeared in an adaptation of Macbeth, a Discworld adaptation of Macbeth. And so they are also the the weird sisters from Macbeth as well in, in some way. And uh, I would like to go read that book next. Well, let's go talk about this king that you mentioned, Brent. His name is Verence, and he is young. He's the young king of Lancre. And he's new to the job, and he's trying to do it well. He's really putting everything he's got into it. Now, Langra is a tiny place where everyone knows everyone, and it really only has a king just because that's what you're supposed to do. I, I mean, really, this is just a mid-sized English village in every other sense, really. But Varence has a castle, and he has two people who staff it. Uh, one of them is the cook, and then the other is Sean Og, who's the, the son of the witch Nanny Og, and he does everything else. He has a dozen different jobs that he's supposed to do at the castle, but he tries to take each role distinctly and also very seriously, sometimes having to make people wait while he switches costume or that sort of thing. And that's all a pretty fun gag. But anyway, Varens is interesting to me in particular because it seems that the role of King is really just ceremonial, but he has been doing some reading and he wants to make some improvements in Lancre, especially to the agricultural system. And this lets Pratchett make a lot of jokes. I mean, a lot of jokes about medieval agricultural history, also medieval political history. And I can really imagine sort of a young Terry Pratchett sitting in a classroom, you know, as an adolescent, I guess, learning about how awesome Henry I and Henry II were. And I just really appreciated that, right, as someone who has uh, spent a lot of his life engaged in uh, the study of the European Middle Ages. Uh, but I guess the really probably the most important thing that we should say about Varence's involvement in the plot is simply that he is going to marry the youngest of the the witches, uh, Magrat. Although I think you pronounced her name earlier, Brenda's Magrat. I'm not quite sure where to put that eference, uh, Not quite sure where to put that emphasis. But I will say that your pronunciation of Magrat sounds a lot better than Magrat. But I think Magrat's probably funnier. So I think that's what I'm gonna. That's what I'm gonna go
1: with. And I'll probably switch back and forth between them, um, cause who knows and you can pick. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so Magrat or Magrat. Uh, one nice thing, um, while we're starting to talk about Varence, there's a great bit, um, that as someone who, um, as a day job serves as a public servant, uh, particularly, uh, spoke to me, uh, right away was in the introduction of Varence. Pratchett says, his subjects regarded him with the sort of good-natured contempt that is the fate of all those who work quietly and conscientiously for the public good.
0: Yeah, there's a a lot uh, quietly in this book. There's actually... A lot of political philosophy. I don't know how much we'll we'll spend talking about that here, but there's a lot of it, and I think that's an interesting way to engage with this story. And I I I just really liked the character of Verence because he he was someone who was taking this civil service job that he's got very very seriously, uh, and also though in a comedic way. And I I think it's I think it's great. Last thing we probably should say about Varence too before we move on to the next set of characters is just that yeah he is gonna. marry Magrat. And one, that's the reason that she's going to be leaving witching behind. But also, this is the the setup for the whole plot, right? Because this is the reason that there is going to be a midsummer wedding that is going to require shenanigans and entertainment.
1: And among the shenanigans and entertainment with a capital E entertainment, uh, is a performance by the Lancra Morris men and, uh, Morris dances are kind of English folk dance. Um, but rather than planning to do their traditional Morris dancing, the, uh, Lancre Morris men instead plan to produce a play, uh, and they are led by Jason Ogg again, uh, uh, a- one of Nanny Og's offspring. Um, he is a blacksmith as well, which comes in important because he knows all about working with iron um, and how to deal with it. But he is a mixed group of other uh, companions, a weaver, a tailor, uh, someone else who's a weaver. Uh, Bestiality uh, is the name of one of them uh, because the parents didn't fully understand <laughs> how to name children. So named the daughters after virtues and the sons after the uh, uh, uh devices, uh, and, uh, then Terry Pratchett explains that, uh, the, the- Daughters very much failed to live up to the virtues, but the sons were all very respectable and uh in contrary ways to their name. So bestiality was actually very kind to animals, is one thing that Terry Pratchett tells us. So uh the players then, the Morris men are gonna give us a play. And the play that they're gonna give us uh, as we get into the novel very obviously is uh some kind of Discworld version of a Midsummer Night's Dream.
0: Right, and uh, it, very clearly, right. The Lancre Morris men are the Rude Mechanicals from A Midsummer Night's Dream, and in fact, there's a bit of a gag in which they're discussing Rude Mechanicals and trying to figure out what the heck a Rude Mechanical is. And uh, that was a joke <laughs> that I think really, uh, really, really appealed to me. And yeah, they're a fun, they're a fun bunch. This is an interesting part of the the plot, uh, and we can talk about the the ways that Pratchett is using the Lancre Morris men versus the way that uh, Shakespeare uses the Rude Mechanicals when we. Get to that part of the the outline here, but we've got one last group of characters that we need to meet before we get into the the plot synopsis, and that is the wizards, right? And these are a small group from the Unseen University, and this Unseen University is, I mean, it's essentially a school for uh, for wizards, and it is in that uh, fantasy London city that you mentioned earlier, Brent, and they've been invited to the wedding. And lots of people have been invited to the wedding. Basically, anyone who's in charge of, you know, know, a head of state, anyone who's in charge of some kind of important institution, they've all been invited to the wedding. But it's clear that most people are not going to go to this wedding, that people are not really all that concerned with a royal wedding uh, in uh, a country that's actually just the size of, you know, a small English village. But these wizards have surprisingly decided to attend and who we have here among the wizards are the aging and bumbling head of the university. We have a young professor full of jargon. And uh, this character is great. Let's Pratchett make fun of quantum mechanics and other developments in physics that were all over the news in the 1980s and 1990s. And there is also the librarian who is a wizard who has been turned into an orangutan. And uh, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> and I'll say too, that these are characters who have two books of their own in Discworld, but then who also appear in a lot of other books as as recurring characters. So if you're someone who's read right along with us, and this is also your first uh, dip into Discworld, and you liked these characters, there's more for you. And I liked these characters a lot myself, so that might be where I'm going next with Discworld.
1: And because a lot of Discworld novels either evolved directly around or at least have characters going in or out of uh, Ankh-Morpork, uh, where the wizards typically are located in their university, um, there's lots of good excuses to pull them into things. Um, and so, I remembered vaguely the librarian character from one of my readings of one of the not- watch novels. It's such a funny thing to go with. <laughs> Yeah, I really liked these characters, and as someone who loves school stories
0: and especially fantasy school stories, uh, I yeah, there's a strong chance that I will be be checking out at least one of the books that they are sort of central characters in. And 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 maybe that's something I'll, I'll report back on. But yeah, we should talk about what all these characters are doing together, right? What is the plot of this book? And as we've said. This novel is Pratchett's riff on A Midsummer Night's Dream, and A Midsummer Night's Dream has three elements to it. Uh, First, there's a royal wedding with relationship shenanigans. Then there are some buffoons putting on a play. And then the final element is elves or fairies. And that is what we get here as well. So Varence and Magrat are going to be married at Midsummer. The Locker Morris men are trying to put on a play as part of that entertainment, and there are guests arriving. But Pratchett flips the play around, I think, quite a bit by actually focusing on the fairies, the the elves themselves. And it turns out that uh, they're bad. Uh, We're going to talk more about that in a, a later segment. But the backstory is that elves used to live here in our world, but now they have been relegated to another realm and, and trapped there in some way. And this is good because when they were here, they tormented us. They tormented humans. And much of our folk superstitions, uh, warding signs, uh, little protective talismans, and, and, and that sort of thing, much of that is actually about protecting ourselves and our homes from elves. But we've just forgotten that. And we've certainly forgotten, you know, even if we remember some of those details, we've forgotten that it's, it's true, right? That this folklore, these myths and legends uh, have some origin in some kind of truth. But now they're coming back. The elves are coming back through a portal in a stone circle atop a hill. Now, these are not standing stones. These, this the stone circle, they're not standing stones, though those do exist in this world. Rather, these are just unshaped rocks arranged in a circle that are magically locking the door. Now, there are several factors in the elves' ability to cross over to come back to our world. One is that it is simply a time when the two worlds are close to each other, uh, and there are other supernatural things that are happening because of that, uh, things like crop circles, which is a pretty hilarious gag from Pratchett as well. But another is that some young people have been cavorting up on the hill where these stones are, and that gives the elves, and maybe even especially their queen Titania, an opening. But the other is that the Lancre Morris men decide to go practice their play up there, and they are persuaded through some elf telepathy to put more elves in their play. And this human belief in elves then, right, the suspension of disbelief that we all do when we are engaged with a story, this is really what lets the elves cross over. And so, yeah, the elves, they're the antagonists, and the protagonists are, of course, the witches. Granny Weatherwax is the one who knows what's up, of course, and she is trying to stop Titania here. I should say, by the way, that the elf queen in the story has never actually called Titania, but, you know, we know it's her, right? At any rate, Granny is trying to stop her from crossing over, but it does not work, and mostly because everyone else is terribly dumb, and so our heroes end up having to deal with a full-on invasion force of bad, evil elves, Now, of course, our heroes, our characters, they are victorious in the end, and each of the witches has a role to play in defeating the Fairy Queen, defeating Titania. Uh, Magrat dons some armor and some weapons and goes to the elf camp because Varence is imprisoned there, and she's going to rescue him, and along the way, she fights and overcomes some elves, but when she confronts Titania, she loses. She actually falls under the sway of her, her glamour, her magic. But Granny Weatherwax is there, and she takes on Titania now, and this frees up Magrat again, though Granny actually dies in the fight. And Magrat now is able to even overcome Titania. But at this point, Oberon arrives, and Oberon and Titania, they don't get along. We all know that from Shakespeare. Uh, They also don't live together, and they also have very different ideas about when and also how fairies, uh, elves are going to return to the the human world. And so Nanny Ogg went to go find him in his home and to persuade him to come intervene. And now here he is doing just that. And he is the king after all, and he commands the elves to return. And that's how the, the plot wraps up. That's the end of the book, except that I also should say that Granny Weatherwax wasn't really dead and she's fine. And that's the end of the book.
1: Yeah, it's just a simple little piece with, uh, you know, dozens of characters. And, uh... <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's a huge amount of moving parts in this book. I left out so much just to give that sort of bare skeleton of the plot because there's so much attached to you know the ribs and the limbs of this the skeleton of a, of a plot that I think really are where probably the, the joy of the book actually lies.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a fun little uh, bit. So um, to get into some discussion about some of the themes and motifs. Uh, one thing I want to talk about at the top was the kind of theme of the generational conflict that we had, particularly amongst the witches. Um, cause you have Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og and Magrat Garlic, and there's clearly, uh, for much of the novel, a lot of animosity and frustration that Magrat has with the other two, particularly with Granny, uh, and the way she feels she's being treated. Things are put into motion. She, Magrat discovers well into the novel um, by Granny uh for Magrat's best interest in a way that Magrat does not really appreciate. And so there's a lot of kind of frustrated Almost teenager behavior, although I'm led to believe that Magrat is not a teenager, uh, but still kind of some generational conflict there between uh Granny and Magrat. But additionally, um, there is a younger group of witches who also uh, – or witch wannabes who have been going and dancing naked around the stones, which has helped weaken the barrier, led by uh Diamanda Tockley. And there is – A specific kind of stare off competition, literally, that occurs between Granny Weatherwax and Diamanda. And the relationship between those two, I think, is fairly interesting as well. Um, after Granny beats and bests Diamanda in the stare off competition, um, one of Diamanda's, uh, friends who similarly wanted to be a witch shows up to, you know, to hope that Granny will want to teach her things and Granny tells her, Go check on Diamanda. She probably feels quite upset right now and quite alone. And so it shows to me that, you know, deep down, Granny does actually care about this. You know, teenage upstart who thinks she knows better than the older witches, which we have a lot of that, particularly in the young witches, though, or witch wannabes, Diamanda and her crew, you know, think that they've read things and a lot of it's kind of riffing on and making fun of some kind of new age kind of wording and uh, interpretation of things, um, versus, uh, the kind of, no, no, it's really simple. You're overthinking it view that the actual witches have regarding witchcraft. It's kind of a fun juxtaposition there. But there's also just – in many ways, Diamanda is a young granny and Magrat is in some ways a different kind of parallel universe approach to life that Magrat – path that Magrat – or the granny could have walked instead. And so in that, I kind of see the cycles of generational conflicts, but it's also in part because they're dealing with the obstinance of younger versions of themselves in some ways.
0: Yeah, I was really interested in the extent to which Pratchett in this book is writing about uh people who are middle-aged and older, which is really rare in fantasy fiction, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Which is so skewed towards uh towards a younger audience and even even when it is not, it is it, it often gives us protagonists who are quite young. And of course, one of the just sort of technical reasons to do that is that it hel- it helps when you're writing a fantasy book set in a secondary world to have a character who also doesn't know anything about that world, just like your readers don't. And so you pick a young person, right? Who's just starting out, going out into the world and so on. But this uh, this felt like Murder, She Wrote, and that most of the characters <laughs> here are, are middle-aged or older. And that was awfully, awfully refreshing. I, I didn't know that that was something that had been missing for me in speculative fiction, but it really it turned out it was, and I really appreciated that.
1: Yeah, it's really great. And as you said, there are many players, uh, both the actual capital P players and the many character players uh, that we have throughout this novel. But the witches themselves, Granny, Nanny, and uh, Magrat, really are the protagonists more so than anyone else's. Um, and the novel is very much more about them, even when it's not about them directly on any given page. And that is really refreshing. And Yeah, we usually have characters who are the audience surrogates and therefore our main protagonists who are, you know, young or when even when they're not young, like Bilbo Baggins was not that young when he went off um, on his adventures, but he still was very naive about the world and had. Very little understanding of what anything was like outside the Shire. And here we have the opposite. We have very kind of, in some ways, even world weary women who definitely know what's up, but it never came across to me like you were dropping too much exposition on the audience, which is really hard to do, I think, when you've got your uh, protagonists, beings, pe- you know, characters who particularly in Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Ogg, know lots and lots of things, and yet we don't get exposition dumps, and we still can kind of go along with them for fun. That being said, the stakes then necessarily don't always feel as terrifying as they would if we had it instead from Diamanda's view or Jason Ogg's view throughout.
0: I think that's right because Granny Weatherwax in particular is although you know she's she's taking this threat very very seriously she's the only one who is you know the, the entire time from the start she's also extraordinarily confident or at least is putting on uh, a confident demeanor and so that does not reinforce for for readers a sense of terror uh, though you know I think Pratchett found some ways to give us that, but that's not. In general, the tone, I think, that this book is really going for. And you're also right about the the manner in which he does exposition, that rather than have a uh, young person be our point of view character who needs to have things explained and and that sort of thing, uh, what we get instead, actually, is Granny Weatherwax in particular, but then also Nanny Ugg, to a lesser extent, being frustrated by, exasperated with uh, the stupidity of young people. And so a lot of the exposition comes in these kind of rants <laughs> aimed at or about young people and how they they don't know what they're talking about and don't know what they're doing. And that also, I thought was, I mean, it was funny, but it also just was uh, such a different way of doing it. And it was it was very cool. Part of the fun for me, Brenton in, in doing episodes on whole novels, single episodes on whole novels in this format is that... I had is that we don't coordinate with each other ahead of time about picking these themes and motifs. (laughs) And, you know, I go back and forth when I'm doing these with with other people about who goes first, you know, whether I go first or, you know, the other person goes first. In this case, you were going first. And for me, then, that means I do a little bit of guessing about what you might pick as yours so that I'm not going to be stepping on your toes. And so it turns out, though, that I actually had picked something that's fairly adjacent to what you just brought up, because the thing that I really enjoyed the most about this book was its emphasis on love and relationships. And a lot of those also speak to the topic of of generations or ages and also relationships, I guess, uh, between generations, right? Conflict is certainly a type of relationship for sure. But let me just run through some of the places where we see love and other types of relationships here in the story. I mean, first of all, right, obviously the setup is a wedding, but also each of the witches is dealing with romance in some way. Margaret is getting married, but she's having lots of second thoughts about it. And in particular, she's worried and, and angry as well about giving up her sense of self. Then we have Nanny Og, who's being romantically pursued by one of the wedding guests. Uh, this is a, a dwarf who we have not talked about at all up to this point, but we even get to see them go on a date. And then this uh, romantic interest here as well, this dwarf whose name is uh, Casanunda, uh, joins her in the visit to Oberon, so he gets to participate in the quest as well. And then we've got Granny Weatherwax, who is being romantically pursued as well, but this time it's by the head of the unseen University. But this is not actually a new meeting for them. They, in fact, dated before. They dated decades ago in their youth when the wizard was spending the summer in Lancre. And Now he's totally caught up in what could have been. I guess, is the way to to say that. Well, you know, Granny's busy trying to save the world. Uh, This is actually a dynamic that creates some comedy. Uh, I invoked Murder, She Wrote earlier, but this business is all kind of moonlighting, I guess, to talk about other 1980s TV (laughs) shows. Uh, And also, as you've mentioned a few times, Brent, Granny has actually set Magrat up with Varence and mostly arranged the whole thing, and that has been motivated, it turns out, out by a sense of having missed out on love herself, that she made a different choice. She chose her career over love, and she is helping Magrat make a a different choice, perhaps a choice that she wishes that, at least in some ways, wishes that she had made. But we see other personal relationships as well. Uh, Granny and Nanny are both Older women, I I think that you're right, Brent, to suggest that there is still some kind of age difference there. But I think they're closer to each other's age than to Magret's age, and so we see them having a a long friendship. But they've also got the young Magret as well, which is the one of the things you wanted to focus on there, Brendan. You know that is a uh, a complicated relationship dynamic as you've talked about. We also get Nanny's adult children who have minor roles to play in the story, and so we also uh, get to see some parenting there. Nanny is a uh, a tough a tough parent uh, for sure. That's some more generational conflict that we get there, and we also get two contrasting groups of bachelor friends. Right, we get the the wizards, and then we also get the Lancra Morris men. Who I guess not all of them are actually technically bachelors there, but they are um, a, a, a group of men engaged in a type of fraternity without other relationship entanglements, at least while they're hanging out together. But then also finally here there are the elves, right? Titania and Oberon are married, but they have no love for each other. And in fact, what makes these elves so monstrous is that they lack empathy and in fact may lack the ability to love at all. And that's what makes them evil, what's make what makes them that's what makes them evil, it's what makes them scary. And so in all, and I've actually left a few things out as well, but in all, there is a lot of rich emotional experience for these characters that I did not expect coming into this book and that I really, really appreciated.
1: Yeah, it was it was really great to me that by the end of the book, I could very clearly understand the relationship that any two characters in the book had to each other as if they had interacted at all. And that each of those is slightly different. None of them felt like a cut and paste. Um, the relationship that Granny has with Nanny is more one of kind of sorority. Um, and so even there, there is an age difference there and an experience difference there. It is not as severe as it is between uh, the two of them and uh, magret and I think that that somewhat mirrors the approach that, I mean, you know, as someone in their forties now, Glenn, um, I think that we feel closer kinship with those who are kind of in their late thirties through even like late fifties than, you know, when we were 30 it's a much narrower band, right? Those under 25 just hadn't fully had the experience we had had yet. And those over 35 were in a kind of phase of adulthood that we had not yet entered or had not yet been willing to admit we were entering. So I think there was a lot to play there. And you mentioned the elves and the fact that uh, they don't really have love. And that I think is a a thing they have and also specifically one of the ways that they're able to be defeated is they don't really learn things either. They don't have experiences in which they can learn and develop in new ways. Um, and through these love stories that we see playing out of, you know, the one that is, you know, burgeoning, in various ways, um, in various stages of life, uh, or the one that is being revisited as something that, you know, could have been, um, we see people learning from their experiences, uh, both those, you know, thinking about experiences they've already had in the past and how those have shaped them and making decisions about how they want to continue to be shaped or not by continued relationships or not. I think that it is really well kind of put together and, uh, I'm, I'm curious to see how Pratchett would have, if he actually sat down to try to diagram all of these various relationships <laughs> in some way, uh, or if he just had it all in his head.
0: Yeah. I mean, gosh, I, I certainly would love to know more about Pratchett's craft for sure. I mean, this is this is not the sort of thing I could ever do as a, a writer in any anyway. I, I just couldn't even keep track of this many characters, let alone their relationships with each other. But Pratchett does it absolutely brilliantly. I, I want to go back to this I- idea about the elves you know, and their lack of empathy, their inability to love, as also being uh, an inability to grow and to learn, which I think is totally spot on. But I think on the flip side of that, too, one of the things that the elves don't understand about people is that we care about each other, or at least that we can. Mm. And Mm -hmm. I think it it is actually this sense of love, uh, several different types of love that people have, that our Mm -hmm. heroes have, that really is what propels them to be heroes in the first place, right? Granny has uh, an overwhelming love of the people in her life and this desire to protect them. And also a, a love of place as well. That is really, really motivating her. Magrat's, you know, just boldly boldly walking into the the face of these terrifying villains she's doing that to rescue The person that she loves, and Varence himself is motivated. Although he's not one of the heroes here, really, in the at least in terms of defeating the the elves, right? But he is someone whose main character attribute is that he has a profound love of his country, right? He has this this patriotic love that really drives him. And so, you know, that's a a stark contrast that I I hadn't actually thought about until you, you you pointed that out about the elves, Brent. But I think that that's that's really
1: really there. It's a big part of how this all works. Well, and uh, one of the characters is trying to think about something that elves lack. And they're like, it starts with an M. And the person's thinking of a bunch of words that start with the letter M. And then <laughs> it turns out that, no, it's empathy. They lack empathy, which starts with an M. Um, <laughs> uh, and I think in, in that way, you know, empathy helps define not the totality, but many aspects of the various types of love that you can have. You know, whether it's romantic, uh, or, uh, collegial or, you know, patriotic or, um, you know, familial
0: yeah, absolutely. And it's something i I, I said I, I wasn't expecting to find that level of richness here and and wow, it it was here. and it was so good. I was delighted by it. Before Brent, we move into talking about a midsummer Night's dream, I want to actually share one more funny bit uh, with our with our listeners as well that I think connects the two themes that we have picked out here, the the love and relationships and then also uh, generational conflict or or generational gap, which is that uh, Verenz, uh for all of his book learning. Well, all he really has is book learning is, I guess, kind of the point. And as much as he knows about how to improve the uh, agricultural uh, techniques of Lancre, uh, part of the gag here in in his character is that he's not sure what's up with sex. And uh, he's about (laughs) to be married. And this is a fun gag, but this is also part of but this, but part of this gag too is about Magrat, and that Nanny keeps trying to have the talk with Magrat, and and it's not ever actually going very well. And uh, uh, we kind of leave the book with realizing that perhaps, <laughs> perhaps their wedding night would be much improved if they had uh, given a little more credence to their elders. And it was a it was a funny gag, a running gag throughout the book that I, I quite enjoyed.
1: Yeah, there was a funny bit in there about uh, him commenting on uh, the success of husbandry of animals, and uh, Magrat thinking that uh, there was also maybe some concern to have about the wifery of animals as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's lots of hilarity there. I mean, Pratchett, it turns out he's pretty funny. But we'll return to, to jokes <laughs> later. We're going to have a little segment on, on picking our favorite favorite jokes. But yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's hit the elephant in the room here, which is that uh, we need to talk about a Midsummer Night's Dream, as that is really the real that we're covering this book here on this show instead of on our other show, ATOS, where we do normally cover fantasy novels. And, and of course, we have been spending a lot of time on this show thinking about A Midsummer Night's Dream in the context of Gaiman's appropriation of it for The Sandman. But I think let's start by talking about what Pratchett is doing in terms of Shakespeare before we go talk about The The Sandman, talk about Neil Gaiman. And I'll get us started just by continuing to talk about love and relationships, because the play is a rom-com, right? And in Shakespeare, one of the major elements is a love potion called Love in Idleness. And this does get name-checked in the book as one of Pratchett's jokes, but Pratchett doesn't have Oberon and Titania in some kind of silly quarrel. He certainly does not have Titania fall in love with a donkey or, you know, a human dressed as a donkey. That's just not something that happens here, right? And so in all, this is, as we've been talking about a little bit already, it's a very different approach to the fairies than what Shakespeare takes.
1: Yeah. I mean, at one point he says, no one would want to see it if it had a donkey in it. (laughs) Yeah. And
0: of course, totally wrong about that. But also, I I like the approach.
1: But yeah, it's a fun little, they're trying to make their own spin on it. And yeah, it's just, it's a slightly off discworld play. It's not actually written by Shakespeare. Um, But then they're also trying to figure out how to present it themselves that the Morris men are. And again, uh, some of them just want to go back to why are we not just doing our folk dancing?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. And I mean, certainly they obviously should have, which is, I don't know, maybe that's also a bit of Pratchett's
1: uh, political philosophy uh, showing up there. And one of the other things about kind of the setup for the play is that the reason why they're performing it so close to this thin area between where the, 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 the fairies are the elves are and where, um, you know, the regular disc world is at the, the dancers at these stones is because they're trying to go somewhere where they will not be seen uh, because they think of it as seeming embarrassing to be actors and to play the part. And so it's, it's got kind of the funny self-seriousness that the at- players have in Midsummer Night's Dream, but coupled with just kind of a lot of self-awareness and concern about how ridiculous it is. Um, in fact, I think at some point it, even mentions that people did walk by when they were trying to rehearse and people were laughing at them. Um, and it could be they were laughing at them because the jokes were working, but more likely, uh, at least their interpretation is they was laughing at them because they were, you know, dressing up as a lion and other things and, and saying these lines um, in this, this farce.
0: Yeah. So I think for me, the big thing that, that Pratchett is doing differently than Shakespeare is really placing the emphasis of the story on the the, the fairies here, right? Whereas in the play, though, there are these three elements or, or three groups, right? There's the young lovers, there's the rude mechanicals, and then there are the, the fairies. The fairies, I think, get the least amount of, of stage time uh, of among those three groups that in fact, a huge chunk of the play actually is the rude mechanicals, right? and and but here in the novel, the lancre Morris men, I think, really, don't get a whole lot of page time. Uh, I mean, they're hilarious when they are there, when they're present in scenes, but or when we're getting scenes about them, but they don't really occupy a big percentage of the novel, and they don't play a huge role other than that they are the you know accidental inciting incident or accidental catalyst, I should say, for the elves coming in. Uh, and then, of course, Pratchett here has... Yeah, uh, he certainly has young lovers, but he, he's not giving us four of them who are going to have some sort of uh, confused entanglement. He's just giving us the two um, and really completely altering then what that element of the story is is about and really focusing his story on on the elves, and then what the the witch characters are going to do about it. So as adaptations go, I mean, what, it's, it's certainly quite a loose adaptation. It's really more of a kind of inspired by, I suppose, than an, an adaptation of. Uh, but it, But really, I think what Pratchett is doing, maybe just to sum it up, is sort of taking the small element in Shakespeare and making it the central element here in his story. And I think that can lead us into thinking about Pratchett and and Gaiman here. So what are some of the things then that you see, I don't know, similarities, differences between the approaches of of Gaiman and Pratchett here Brent in adapting or or riffing on this source material?
1: Well, I think similar to what we saw in A Midsummer Night's Dream the comic issue not the play was um this idea of fairies are real. And they can come and witness kind of plays of themselves. Um, but you know, they're, they're otherworldly, literally. So they're, they're from some other plane. They have to pass through. There's only some points where this can easily occur and they're not really in tune with the way that humans kind of interact or think. It's not for the most part as nefarious in. Sandman and in Neil Gaiman's interpretations of it, where, you know, we have Queen Titania just asking Dream, like, I don't understand, you know, exactly what's happening. Um, and then he was trying to explain some of the elements of the play to her. Well, as what Pratchett gives us is a much darker version of the elves where they're not trying to even understand or acknowledge the difference. They're just doing their own thing. They're more just like a, a force of nature. Um, specifically so even um But either way, it's kind of these alien things from kind of a world that is just the side of the normal world that can kind of permeate under the right conditions of timing and kind of behaviors um, of people who can help draw those things in. The other thing that we see is in the discussion of – very briefly, and it's discussed a lot more elsewhere in some other Discworld novels, I believe – but kind of the role – and the presence and role of gods – in the disc world, which is very much fueled by if there's enough belief, it affects, you know, how strong that these gods are, even that they come into existence at all. Um, and that's something that's mentioned a couple times in uh, Lords and Ladies. Um, it is something we see in Sandman uh, as well, particularly in the storyline we're currently discussing, where there's discussion about kind of people's belief um, and how that affects the kind of waxing and waning power levels of kind of mythological beings um and that's something that gaming continues to explore a lot particularly in the american gods um uh, and uh, its follow on book um anansi boys
0: yeah, I mean, that's a that's a huge similarity that they've got here, right? This idea of belief as a kind of supernatural power. And in fact, here's a a, a bit of the text actually where we where we get this. Uh, the line is, a circle is a door half open. It doesn't need much to open it up all the way. Even belief will do it, right? And so yeah, that's definitely one of the places where we can see a commonality between the way that Pratchett and Gaiman are just approaching supernatural, the supernatural in, in general, but the, the fairies or elements. Uh, specifically. Uh, of course, another similarity that really jumped out to me is that both of them in, involve the long man, right? Uh, this is quite prominent, uh, you know, visually prominent in The Sandman. Uh, But here, actually, it's beneath The Longman, you know, this huge kind of uh, relief sculpture uh, on the side of a hill. It's actually underneath there. That's actually where Oberon lives here in Lords and Ladies. And uh, so I liked that connection as well. And as I said at the top of the show, it's definitely my headcanon that, uh, you know, it's it's no accident, right, that these works have uh, such interesting similarities, that it does feel to me like both of these works have grown out of some kind of uh, conversation or dare or bet or something like that.
1: Yeah, they, they definitely and they were both written around the same time, and, and obviously Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett, uh, long acquaintances and friends, um, even at this point. So
0: yeah, honestly, I, I even had to wonder, and this is perhaps something that uh, a bit of Google sleuthing would have uh, uh, led me to to understand or appreciate better. But I almost had to wonder if they hadn't actually talked about doing this type of book as a collaboration and wound up doing Good Omens instead. I you know I don't know if they were sort of saying, well, let's let's riff on some bit of. Uh, uh, classic English literature, um, should we do Shakespeare or should we do Milton? You know, I think it might've been a conversation <laughs> they were having and settled on Milton, but had already brainstormed some good ideas for Shakespeare as well. There are a couple more things I want to talk about, uh, just comparing what they have done here. Uh, you know, we, we spent a lot of time talking about how the the elves or the, the lords and ladies here in lords and ladies don't have empathy, right? They're they're incapable of love and that this is something that renders them fun. Fundamentally different from humans, and you mentioned earlier, Brent, that, that Gaiman has some of that as well. With Titania not quite wrapping her head around what's going on, but uh, in particular in the Sandman, right? Something that sets the fairies aside from from humans, or really almost uh, seemingly every other living creature in the whole universe, is that they can't dream, right? So both of them have this idea that uh, there is something fundamentally different between humans and fairies uh, in ways that you know we don't see with say humans and klingons or uh, that sort of thing elsewhere in speculative fiction and i found that to be really interesting as well but there was also i think a real difference of course in their approach right gaiman's fairies are not monstrous even if they are different they're not evil and in the sandman the absence of fairies from our world at least for dream is a kind of sadness right but here in discworld it's a relief you know it's great it's awesome that our ancestors uh, or you know the the human ancestors in discworld i guess got rid of their fairies and of course it's awesome that granny and her uh, ragtag band of uh, of heroes have you know save the day here. Right. Uh, And so just the, the emotional tone there, right. About the, the fairies is a, is a real contrast as well.
1: I mean, it is a real contrast. Um, but also, as you said, there's the similarity of kind of the unique role that, that kind of normal mortal humans play that preserving the ability of normal humans to kind of go about their lives and live them and make the good choices they make and the bad choices they make. It's kind of a paramount thing. Um, and these outside influences that want to come in and take away the ability to do that um, are things that are best things left to the past. That, that this is not something where you want in either universe um, kind of the over effect of kind of external forces. Even just a different approach that – I mean, Morpheus – Runs hot and cold as to mortals, but the way that, uh, he gave the speech to desire at the end of a game view where there's the discussion or doll's house rather, um, at the discuss- discussion of like, we're supposed to serve them, sister, not the other way around. You, you, you've, you've misread things. Um, even though we're more powerful, they're actually the ones who are kind of, you know, he doesn't say this, but they're the, those are the central characters. The central characters are not us these, you know, higher supernatural forces.
0: Yeah, I think that is something that shows up a little bit here in Lords and Ladies, right in the character of, of Oberon, this different... Uh, approach that he and Titania have to their relationship with humans and and understanding the humans' ability to have gotten rid of them. Um, I mean, I say ability. I mean, I've been talking about this as if like in days of yore, there was some humans versus elves war in which the elves were gotten rid of here in Discworld. And that is not true. That uh, what's happened is the development of civilization and a kind of uh, medieval agricultural or maybe agrarian revolution uh, the use of iron in particular has just made it a world that is inhospitable to elves, that elves can't live in this world that has so much iron in it. They can't live in this world uh, that is being reshaped by by humans for their own purposes, right? A, a world in which humans are harnessing and, and the power of nature and dominating the natural landscape and, and altering it. That doesn't work for elves. And Titania wants to fight back, right? But Oberon just wants to bide his time, Right. And so Oberon, I think, has this this type of view that that maybe Dream has, something more akin to to Dream's view, right? In this sense of look, it is their world, at least right now. You know and 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 we have to respect that um, and and doing otherwise is just going to lead to more heartache for us, more disaster for us, and so he's exercising this kind of uh, distance but maybe also respectful patience uh, where titania is is reacting with with anger here, and yeah, you can see that as kind of a parallel actually in that conversation between dream and desire
1: and looking at the relationship between Titania and Oberon in Sandman's. Midsummer Night's Dream versus uh, the presentation we get in Lords and Ladies, I feel like uh Neil Gaiman has Titania as kind of the – I don't know if this is fair, but smarter of the two, while as it almost flips in Lords and Ladies, where she is just operating more kind of brash and – um desirous of doing things now and she's tired of waiting while Oberon is taking the the long approach. I guess we don't know whether the long approach is going to be more successful for them in the long run, but uh I feel like uh the not acting hasty uh approach is m- what we definitely see from Titania. And maybe it's just that Titania and Oberon in Sandman are more like Oberon is in Lords and Ladies. And the difference here is the queen figure in Lords and Ladies.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I I do think that Titania and Oberon – here in Lords and Ladies feel a little bit more Shakespearean to me than they do in Sandman, where, yeah, Oberon, I think as we joked about even in that episode, was kind of a doofus who doesn't realize that uh, Titania and Dream are having an affair, right? And uh, y- yeah, that's that's not what we get in Shakespeare, right? Both of those characters are strong-willed, powerful characters in Shakespeare, and I think that that's what we see here in Pratchett as well, but just with very different approaches to things. And in, in some ways, I guess, Pratchett is really just you know, dialing the, the elves uh, up to 11 here i mean that's that's kind of what he has done in this book Well, I think there's probably more that we could say about these similarities and differences, but I think this is also a place where we would like to invite listeners to participate in that conversation with us. So it is time for us to move on to talking about the craft of this book. And uh, look, this book is funny. It's a funny book. That's, That's what Discworld is. That's what Terry Pratchett does. So let's start our craft discussion by talking about the humor. We've each picked out a few favorite jokes to present to each other here. So Brent, why don't you kick us off? What was your I guess your number one favorite joke here in this book.
1: My number one favorite joke is, and it involves the, the, the Morris men, uh, the players, um, and they're talking about the play uh, specifically. And then they say, I'm going to read it." It's a kind of exchange that a couple of them have. Well, we certainly don't talk like these buggers in the writing, said Carter the baker. I never said foldy roll in my life, and I can't understand any of the jokes, <laughs> you ain't supposed to understand the jokes. This is a play said Jason and it's a funny exchange. Um, and it's, you know, in a broader exchange as well um, where it's a funny commentary on jokes, but it's also a commentary on kind of the way that particularly as a modern audience, we approach Shakespeare, right? Where um, we are, we treat it as some kind of reverent thing when so many of his plays are comedies or at least have com- comedic elements and you're supposed to find them funny. And if your audience doesn't get the joke, maybe you aren't really successfully presenting the heart of the play, even if you're presenting the words of the play. Um, and I think that it's just, it, again, it's a funny exchange, but it also works for me real well as commentary on kind of modern play production. This is a
0: particular bailiwick of uh, one of my favorite Shakespeare podcasts that I almost certainly mentioned when we did our episode on A Midsummer Night's Dream, but this is the uh, the podcast Chop Bard, uh, And he spends a lot of time, uh, the host Aaron Ziegler, spends a lot of time actually <laughs> joking about the fact that this or that play is taught to teenagers because can you believe how many different slang words there are for human genitals in this play? It, and how uh, that's what all the jokes are about. And I can't believe this is the one <laughs> (laughs) we teach in grade school or this is the one we teach in middle school. And yeah, that's where a lot of the richness is lost. So yeah, that's a great joke. That's a great meta joke there. I appreciated that.
1: What was a a particular line or scene that struck you as particularly funny where you may have even laughed out loud?
0: Yeah. So something that we haven't said about the way this book functions so far is that uh, there are footnotes occasionally. The footnotes are (laughs) always jokes, right? It's a way of kind of interrupting something uh, with a joke without having to interrupt it. And so uh, my favorite bit of humor was uh, a footnote fairly early on in the book. It's actually uh, on page 34 of the edition that we've got, Brent. And I'm just going to read the entire footnote to you. No one knows why it is, but in any group of employed individuals, the only naturally early riser (laughs) is always the office manager who will always leave reproachful little notes, or as it might be, engraved helium crystals on the desks of their subordinates. In fact, the only place this does not happen very often is the world Xerix. And this is only because Xerix has 18 sons, and it is only possible to be an early riser there once every 1,789.6 years. But even then, once every 1,789.6 years, resonating to some strange universal signal, small-minded employers slither down to the office with a tentacle full of small, reproachful, etched frimp shells at the ready. And, uh, (laughs) this, uh, this joke speaks to me as both a morning person and as the person who ends up doing all the planning in just about every endeavor I've ever participated in.
1: To start off with, yes, yeah, I, I do love the footnotes throughout this. Uh, and I particularly love there are some occasions where there are footnotes w- to the footnotes. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is clearly just Pratchett having fun with the format of footnotes. Um, I think the rest of us wouldn't even think to do that. We would just do the extra side as a parenthetical within the footnote. At least that's what I would do. But uh, I it works so much better if you're Terry Pratchett to do the footnote within the footnote. I don't know if anyone else could accomplish that. But the commentary on the uh, early risers and leaving the notes, um, it's a series of jokes that works real well. Um, it reminded me a lot, particularly because it mentions a separate planet of – um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which there's a lot of commonality in writing style between these authors, right? Uh, and at its best, I think Hitchhiker's Guide kind of similarly has that kind of tone to it, where it's just got an aside about a random planet, and then because of what goes on in that planet, here is the, you know, punchline of the joke. Um, that being said, um, Uh, I've talked to Brandon and Valerie, and we'll try really hard to label our food in the uh, Clay Temple Media refrigerator, Glenn. We do appreciate uh, that we uh, need to stop just putting stuff in there and letting it grow uh, to the point that it becomes its own civilization. And then we have to go through the ethical quandary of how soon can we throw it out? Um, Should we let it collapse on its own weight first or not? I understand that that does cause a lot of frustration for you. So we apologize.
0: Yeah, fortunately, I have never given into this impulse to leave these passive aggressive notes. But but I will say it is an impulse, I feel. I just haven't given into it. So, yeah, Pratchett is really – I felt seen by this joke is what I'm what I'm saying.
1: <laughs> All right, Brian, what's another joke you really liked? One of the jokes I really liked, um, and it's because impartially in thinking about writing, is it's really hard to figure out how to start things. And in some way, the start to this novel, uh, eventually we get there. Um, and – yeah, I think that some of the criticism of the novel is that, you know, it kind of meanders a little bit and we'll talk about that a little bit more, I think, when we talk about our summations, but I think it's healthy if you're going to have a novel that is going to meander a little bit to set that up right off the top. Um, and I really like Terry Pratchett kind of acknowledging the difficulty of the beginning. So right at the start of the novel, after he's had the little uh, preface that talks about how you know, perhaps this one doesn't stand on its own as well as other ones do. So here's a brief recap on a couple characters, particularly the relationship between Varen. And Magrat, he goes ahead and begins uh, thusly. Now read on. When does it start? There are very few starts. Oh, some things seem to have to be beginnings. The curtain goes up. The first pawn moves. The first shot is fired. Footnote: probably at the first pawn. But that's not the start. The play, the game, the war is just a little window on a ribbon of events that may extend back thousands of years. The point is there's always something before it's always a case of now read on much human ingenuity has gone into finding the ultimate before the current state of knowledge can be summarized. Thus in the beginning, there was nothing which exploded. Um, and I just, I I love the way he sets the tone up front right there of it's just, it's very introspective and very funny there was nothing which exploded. I just, I love that. <laughs> yeah. There, there's actually quite a bit of
0: introspection here in this book about books, about stories, right? Which is something we talk about with Gaiman all the time, right? That Gaiman is a storyteller who loves to write about stories and storytelling and storytellers and to think about the role of, of stories in our, in our lives. And just that line, even there reminds me of something that we get, uh, back in preludes and nocturnes in, uh, uh 24 hours where we we get the waitress at the the diner who is uh, a, a hobbyist uh, romance <laughs> writer. And she gives us this monologue about, you know, the, the trouble with stories is the ending, right? That you've got to know where to end the story. You have to end the story on the happily ever after, because actually all stories are going to end in death eventually, right? Uh, and yeah, this this strikes me as kind of the, the, the other side of that, of, of where do stories begin? Well, they all begin with that explosion from nothing, right? If we want to go back all the way. And so we have to arbitrarily find some place to begin our stories and end our stories. And it's, it's a nice bit of meta
1: commentary there. It's really great. And again, um, as someone who, you know, occasionally tries to write things, um, uh, frequently writes things when I have to for work, uh, but occasionally tries to write things that are more fictitious uh, in my free time, uh, it's really hard to figure out how do I start to get to where I want to go because I have an idea of where I want the middle to be and maybe even the end, uh, how do I start things off? So him just kind of being like, I'm just going to start this way and then that working. And I think it's hard for it to work, um, but I think that Pratchett makes it work because he is Terry Pratchett.
0: Yeah, I agree. It was it was masterful. I mean, just in general, the the writing of this book was phenomenal. And we'll we'll, we'll talk about some some non funny. We'll talk about some more serious bits of of writing to the extent that there that there are here in a bit. But I'm going to share one last joke before we do that, Brent. And it is a pretty simple line here. Uh, it's just Nanny Og uh, saying something in conversation. Uh, she's talking about Varence, the king, but she says kings are a bit magical, mind. They can cure dandruff in that. And uh, this just really really made me laugh out loud because this is a joke about medieval kingship, because in in France and England, high high medieval France and England, kings were regarded as having uh, what is often translated as uh, the royal touch. They they had this healing touch. Uh, This is also something that we know about Aragorn, right? This is something that finds its way into the Lord of the Rings as well, right? The hands of the king are the hands of a healer. But it's not just anything that they can heal. There's one specific ailment that Capetian and Plantagenet kings can heal, and it is not dandruff but it's scrofula, that both have, um, you know, the double F in there and some R's. They have sort of, sort of similar sounds and both are skin conditions. Although, of course, scrofula is actually a much more serious skin condition than than dandruff. And so I just, again, you know, imagining adolescent Terry Pratchett sitting in his English history class at his boarding school and having to suffer through, I imagine, sort of droning lectures about Henry the First and Henry II and Richard the Lionheart and so on and so on and learning about this... Um, uh, this royal touch, this healing touch. And, uh, yeah, just Megan turning that into a joke here in this book that I, I just, I just loved, but I will say too, that, that, the, the, on a more serious note, Varence like, is actually full of other medieval kingship stuff that uh, really uh, appealed to me as someone who has worked on medieval kingship. Uh, and just for example, Pratchett also includes here that kings have a supernatural relationship with their land, which is a common motif in medieval literature, particularly Arthurian literature. I mean, it is also the exact plot of the film Excalibur, which you know was fairly current, I think, I guess, when Pratchett was writing this book. But uh yeah all of that really tickled me right that I'm certain that uh, that pratchett was bored out of his mind in that type of class but he paid attention as well or at least did a lot of reading i don't know
1: and on the King's connection to their land, uh, that is very much what we see, particularly in the second issue of Sandman, where because Dream had been imprisoned, what had happened to the Dreaming in his absence uh, did play out. Um, As to the curing of dandruff, um, I also thought it was just a funny commentary on King's perhaps being the ones who um, are wearing wigs and (laughs) also getting people in their court to wear wigs, and therefore you're not going to have dandruff because everyone is just shaving their head anyways, or covering covering their natural hair with the, uh, with the wig, so therefore the dandruff can't actually be freed from your scalp.
0: Yeah. And also usually the, the ones with access and the, the leisure time for bathing, regular bathing as well. So yeah, <laughs> some, class, some class tensions there also. <laughs> All right. there. Look, this this book is a funny book. There are loads of jokes. We just picked four, but like we could have picked 400. But we're going to wrap it up there and move into talking about uh, a non-joke passage that we like. And I'm going to go first here this time. And I'm actually cheating a little bit, Brent, because I'm going to pick two passages that are parallel um, together, they're kind of mirror passages. Uh, And these are are passages that are describing magic in this world. And uh, I'll, I'll just read them both in succession here, and then we can talk about them. What is magic? There is the wizard's explanation, which comes in two forms, depending on the age of the wizard. Older wizards talk about candles, circles, planets, stars, bananas, chants, runes, and the importance of having at least four good meals every day. Younger wizards, particularly the pale ones who spend most of their time in the high-energy magic building, chatter at length about fluxes and the morphic nature of the universe, the essentially impermanent quality of even the most apparently rigid time-space framework, the implausibility of reality, and so on. What this means is that they have got hold of something hot and are gabbling the physics as they go along. And that passage ends in uh, an ellipsis and then is picked up, actually, 14 pages later with another paragraph that opens... What is magic? Then there is the witch's explanation, which comes in two forms, depending on the age of the witch. Older witches hardly put words to it at all, but may suspect in their hearts that the universe really doesn't know what the hell is going on and consists of a zillion trillion billion possibilities and could become any one of them if a trained mind rigid with quantum certainty was inserted in the crack and twisted, that if you really had to make someone's hat explode, all you needed to do was twist into that universe where a large number of hat molecules all decide at the same time to bounce off in different directions. Younger witches, on the other hand, talk about it all the time and believe it involves crystals, mystic forces, and dancing about with your drawers on. Everyone may be right, all at the same time. That's the thing about quantum. And there are a number of things that I love about these passages. Uh, One is that this is really important information, I I guess, that we need to have in a book that's about magic is what is magic? How does the magic work here? We're a quarter of the way, a third of the way through the book before we get it, which that's actually great storytelling there. That's great world building there. But also we get this pair of paragraphs that clearly go together, right? <laughs> are meant to be read, uh, you know, in this way that I've just done, but they're actually separated by fourteen pages. And this is one of the features of the book: is that there are no chapters in this book. There are section breaks. The sections are often quite small, sometimes uh, half a page, sometimes two or three pages, but there's no chapter breaks. And so the structure of the narrative is just a collection of short scenes all together. And often they feel like cutscenes, like we're cutting from something in the middle to go to something else. And we're going to come back to that thing later on. And that is a feature of storytelling that often I would find uh, frenetic and not something that I would find enjoyable. But I actually thought, Pratchett really mastered it here, and I thought it was absolutely brilliant. But I also like that Pratchett is telling us, showing us, that there are different ways of understanding how the universe functions, even among uh, practitioners of the same thing, people with the same title. But also something that I hadn't noticed before, Brent, you did your presentation on uh, generational conflict as one of the themes or motifs here in this book, is that that's exactly what's showing up here as well, right? In each of these instances, the wizard's explanation and the witch's explanation, the answer for what is magic differs by age. But also something that Pratchett does here is that he actually makes the elderly wizard's explanation line up with the young witch's explanation and then vice versa, which is also just just brilliant. So yeah, I, I loved this bit of writing. This was some writing that um, uh, this didn't make me laugh out loud the way the jokes did, but it did make me close the covers and slow clap a little bit.
1: Yeah, it was really well done. And I think you're right that normally you you put these things because they go together next to each other. I think because of kind of the propulsive way in which the story is progressing at this point in the novel, it works to have them separated by this, you know, dozen or so pages. Um, because it's not long, so long that you've forgotten the prior passage. Um, but it does feel like you're being told the story by someone who's just telling it off the cuff, too. It has kind of a very kind of, um, folksy, almost oral way of telling the story where it's just like, Oh, by the way, then back, then this was happening. And then let me tell you, this was also happening. Oh, and then back to the point I was making before, and it makes the whole thing feel. Uh, while on the one hand, he's describing in, you know, in his own almost encyclopedic way, right? The disc world, like here's what these magicians think or these wizards think is magic. And here's what these witches think. And here's, you know, in a very kind of laid out kind of staid fashion on the one hand. On the other hand, it's being presented in a very conversational way, which kind of, I think, pulls you in more as the reader because it feels more like Terry Pratchett is – having a conversation with you and not, here is a lecture about how magic works in this world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. This, and it was just phenomenal. That it worked, worked so, so well. Uh, so what was a non-joke passage that, uh, that you enjoyed, Brent?
1: So I've got kind of one big passage, and then there's a small little other bit that I want to read because I think it goes with it. Okay. So we're both cheating. So that makes me feel bad. We're both cheating. Yeah. No, I wasn't going to. I thought it. Well, I, I thought about cheating and I'm like, no, I shouldn't cheat. And then you cheated. And I'm like, well, the doors are open. The world <laughs> is thin here. Uh, the, the stones don't, can't stop me. No. So it's, uh, it's considering his elves and we've talked about before how his elves are similar and different to those we get presented in Sandman. But there's a great passage and this is starts on page 142 of, Terry Pratchett kind of laying out elves in in kind of a nutshell that that works real well for me. And I'm going to read it, and then I'll talk a little bit more about it. Elves are wonderful. They provoke wonder. Elves are marvelous. They cause marvels. Elves are fantastic. They create fantasies. Elves are glamorous. They project glamour. Elves are enchanting. They weave enchantment. Elves are terrific. They beget terror. The thing about words is that meanings can twist just like a snake. And if you want to find snakes, look for them behind words that have changed their meaning. No one ever said elves are nice. Elves are bad. And then related to this on page 283, everything about the elves was beautiful until the image tilted and you saw it from the other side. So what I love about – there's numerous passages where he does this, but I think that that first kind of longer one on page 142 and 143 uh, works well for him defining his elves is he's he's introducing them and he's immediately kind of evoking a whole bunch of things that you might think about elves from other places in fantasy, literature, mythology, you may have encountered them. But then he's – Twisting it just to the side in a way that actually did evoke to me the kind of terror that I might get when I'm first aware of the xenomorphine alien, right? Where like suddenly it's just like, oh, these elves are actually scary. And in a novel that is very kind of light um, and has a lot of jokes that are, you know, well thought out, but some of them are you know kind of quite pithy. Um, the elves, as they're depicted here, and in particularly in these passages, even more so than when we see them, you know, breaking arms and stuff are terrifying. And it it does such a great job of in a book that is very humorous, making you feel concern um, and care and uh, worry for all of the characters that you've encountered to this point of what these elves might do. And these are not, you know, these are not token elves. These are not Santa elves. These are something very different. Um, and it just does a wonderful job of not saying, okay, they're not what you think they are, they're different. It's saying they are exactly what you think they are, but you're just missing it. That's what's terrifying about them is that tilt. And as soon as you're just adjusting it. So it's a great way of, I think, kind of bringing in what you think about elves. But then saying, you're missing it. They're tricking you and you're missing it. And it, it, it's that kind of extra element of terror that I really think when pulled off um, works very well for me. Um, and I think it works exceptionally well here.
0: Yeah, I love this passage. This was actually my runner-up. <laughs> this was a strong contender for me to read as well. I mean, just the language of it is is awesome. I mean, just the way it sounds when you read it, Brent. But then also, if you're looking at it on the page, that whole section or most of that section is comprised of of lines uh, that have two sentences in them, right? Elves are marvelous. They cause marvels. That, And then there's a paragraph break there, right? And then you get the next one. And it's just visually stunning. And it's, I think, orally stunning as well to to have that but yeah this also I think speaks to something that both Pratchett and Gaiman take up in so much of their fiction. Well, I guess I should say so much of Gaiman's fiction. Anyway, is this idea of what do words mean and what can thinking about words, the meaning of words and how those meanings have changed over time, how what how can that inform us about the past? What can that tell us about the past? Of course, this is a a type of philology, a sort of amateur type of philology here, right? This love, this study of of words. So, you know, we can envision You know, Gilbert, right? Uh, Saying this. I mean, this is here that's coming from the narrator. In fact, honestly, I, I would not be surprised to discover that this whole story has actually been narrated to us by Gilbert, right? And because this is exactly the sort of thing that he does, too, right? And thinking, you've heard this fairy tale before, but the version of it that you have is this cute version. And that's not the original version of this story. But one of the things that has happened to, make us think of that story as cute is that the meaning of words that go into that story have have changed. And, and that's a big uh, theme here in this book. And it's a big way that the elves are presented, right? Because people hear that elves are coming and they're excited about it. They think that's cool. Elves are, are marvelous. Elves are wonderful. Elves are fantastic. They're glamorous. But it's because they think of those words as being positives and have lost the sense that actually they could be used to describe... Describe something that is bad, something you don't want, right? Uh, not something that is nice, something that is bad. And it's, uh, it's just absolutely brilliant.
1: And I now, with your discussion of Gilbert being the one who's telling us this, have in my mind the idea that the Corinthian is just a dreaming version of an elf from the discworld.
0: Oh man, I think that's totally true. Yeah, I think that that is completely true. I had not thought about that. That's spot on.
1: <laughs> Cuz he also lacks empathy and he also is unable to actually learn. And so that's the reason why um he is such a flawed creature and he has that bit where dream has to dispose of him because he just he doesn't he doesn't learn and he's flawed um in this way. And so, yeah. Um
0: and, and as long as he's got the sunglasses on, he's pretty attractive. He's pretty alluring, right? And then yeah. yeah. But then when that that glamour is dropped, then 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 we see him for who he really is. Yeah, that's the same exact sort of thing.
1: And similar to the elves, he drops the glamour when because he wants to evoke the terror. And we have a lot of instances in the elves in this book where they prolong things. They're very much like almost James Bond villains. They want a monologue and prolong things because they're getting the joy out of the suffering and the terror that the mortals experiencing them are, are having, which also then can lead to their downfall because they're just not, you know, acting quickly to, you know, kill James Bond and then move on with world domination, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we have been heaping a lot of praise on this book, Brent, but uh, this book is not actually meant, as you, as you said earlier, it's not actually met with universal praise. And I thought that it might be kind of fun to uh, close out this episode by reading some reviews, some contemporary reviews when this book came out. And I'm going to read two of them. I'll, I'll read one from... Uh, Kirkus reviews, and then I'm going to read one from Publishers Weekly, and then we can uh, we can talk about them. So here's the one from Kirkus Review, and and I should say that n- neither of these reviews actually have an author on on them, so I guess they're just staff writers, perhaps something like that. Uh, but anyway, here's what Kirkus Review writes about Lords and Ladies. So you think elves are handsome and high-minded, or cute, cuddly, and bring good luck? Nope, elves are vicious and sadistic and they stink, according to Pratchett's latest Discworld fantasy romp, and only their magical glamour enables them to bamboozle humans into believing the opposite. So when the horrid elves threaten to invade, only the savvy witches Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og, somewhat assisted by the bumbling wizards of Unseen University, can save the Discworld. As always, Pratchett's brand of comedy has an agreeably wry, self-deprecating quality — and here the review gives a little quotation from the book. The chieftain had been turned into a pumpkin, although in accordance with the rules of universal humor, he still had his hat on. Uh, so that's a free bonus joke. Everyone's just gotten there. But here's the last line of the review. And this is the the one that we're going to want to really concentrate on here. This is a so-so addition to a mostly hilarious series. Uh, and let me just go straight into the publisher we, publisher's weekly review here as well. Pratchett has won an ardent following with his Tales of Discworld and his particular brand of comedic fantasy. This latest installment, however, is unlikely to widen his readership. It's circle time on the Discworld. Portentous, round depressions are showing up everywhere, even in bowls of porridge. Worlds are weaving closer to one another, with unpredictable results. Only the three wacky witches, formidable Granny Weatherwax, Crusty Nanny Og, and Scatterbrained Magret Garlic can ensure that the worst does not happen—the return of the elves— Trouble is, almost everyone else in the kingdom of Lancre is eager to welcome the lords and ladies back. They've forgotten that elves are nasty creatures who live only to torture their prey, humans especially. It's a tempting premise, but underdeveloped by Pratchett, who relies too heavily on his trademark humor, veering into the silly and sophomoric to fuel the early portions of this fantasy. Only in the last third of the novel does he strike a successful balance among action, imagination, and comedy there is much fun to the tale once the smiling sadistic elves actually appear, befuddling the town folk with their beauty and illusion. An earlier arrival would have done much to strengthen this uneven novel. So yeah, Brent, some some critiques there. Uh, uh, Uneven novel, uh, unbalanced novel, uh, unlikely to expand or widen his readership. And then also from the Kirkus Review, a so-so addition to a mostly
1: hilarious series. Uh, Do you agree with these assessments, Brent? I mean, it's hard to comment on how it relates to the rest of the series. Um... I don't think it's a so so novel. I think it's a very good novel. It may be that this is a weaker entry into the series, and that's something that I think you and I can't comment on. As I was reading it, and I I remember seeing, I think, one of those reviews where it mentions, you know, that things don't really get going for a while. And the way I think of it is this sometimes when I want to just have on something in the background while I'm doing something, I think, oh, I should put on a Star Trek episode. And I think, Oh, and I start looking through, like, options, and I'm like, you know what? I don't actually want a Star Trek episode. I just want where something happens. I don't want a plot to interfere. I just want to have, like, the sound of the bridge noise and the crew chatting with each other, but not actually, like, you know, the Romulans showing up. Like, I just really just want to spend time in the background with those characters living in that universe so that I'm only partially engaged. I was not partially engaged with Lords and Ladies. I was closer to fully engaged. But throughout, what kind of struck me was, I feel like a lot of this, if you really needed to, could be cut way down if you were just focusing on the plot. And instead, I think what Terry Pratchett gives us is time with all of these characters. He's giving us time that I think in the Lens of modern editorial approaches would say, you don't need it. Cut that, cut that, cut that, cut that. Let's get to this. Let's heighten the elf bit. The elves are the antagonists, right? The elves are the only antagonists. We've talked about how there's, you know, generational conflicts and there's some conflicts, you know, world views between the wizards and the witches. But ultimately we've got the protagonists, right? We've got the three protagonists and the witches. We've got the elves who have really only two named characters and the rest are just kind of like elves in a generic sense. And they're, you know, just mainly doing what the queen wants them to do. So, you know, you've got really one antagonist, which is the elven queen, and you've got three protagonists get to that. You don't get to that. We spend way too much time with his other stuff. We're reading about carriage rides from a city where then we're meeting a dwarf with a stepladder, And who cares if you are in a hurry and you want plot, and you want driving action, do not read this book. Read this book if you want to have time to live with and enjoy the presence of these characters and the banter that they have with each other, and the minor bits of world building scattered throughout, and the major bits of world building that are scattered throughout um, as you you talked about before with those magic passages, then I think if you want to take time and live in Discworld with these characters, it's an amazing book. I think that's where I fall is I can see this being kind of a disappointment and being like, why don't we get to it? And I can see it as no, this is, this is what I want. Sometimes when I'm like, I want to engage with something, but I don't, I don't want it to be all plot and I don't want it to be all, We need to defeat the elves.
0: Yeah, here, here. I mean, this is exactly how I felt about it as well. I couldn't possibly disagree with Publishers Weekly more than I do. I, I think, feel the reverse. I think uh, I preferred the parts of the book before the elves show up, before the plot crashes in. But as I have said all over this podcast network, plot is, for me, the least important and least interesting element of a story. It's not what I'm going to stories for. I am going to stories for, to, to borrow your uh, analogy there, Brent, I'm going for the engine hum. That's what I want. I'm there for the setting. I want to live in this other world for a little while and just see what it's see what it's like. And this book is phenomenal because it gives me so much of that. I was trepidatious actually about reading this book because I thought it was going to be a lot more plot, <laughs> a lot more plot forward than it actually was. And and also even just a lot more joke forward actually than it actually was. And I think that's the thing the Kirkus Review said um, without really saying, right? So by saying this, it was a so-so addition to a mostly hilarious series. I think it was also saying that it wasn't as fun as the other books, but I thought this book was right, right at the the the, the 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 sort of was right in my Goldilocks zone for humor. That it was it was brilliant. This book was everything that I could ever actually want. This book to be, I couldn't believe how much I loved this book. To be honest, and uh, and so. Where Publishers Weekly also says that this is not likely to uh, widen Pratchett's audience, completely wrong. I want to read. I want to read more. I want to read more Pratchett, and I guess that's really you know the question, right? If, uh, you're going to review this book. The question is, hey, look, there are 40 other books in this in this setting. <laughs> Do you want to read any more of them? And, and maybe that's the question I'll ask you, Brent. Uh, did, did this book, did Lords and Ladies, make you want to check out more Discworld? I know you'd already had one book under your belt, but are you keen on checking out more at this point because of Lords and Ladies?
1: By the end of Lords and Ladies, I uh, was reminded how much I enjoy Terry Pratchett, and I was reminded that I definitely need to put another Discworld book or multiple in the rotation. That, again, there's a time and a place for it, and when it works for me, it'll work great. When it won't work for me, I'll know, and it won't work for me. So, yes, I'm definitely going to read more. I also, upon reading this, uh, beginning to read it, Before I even finished, I instantly remembered, wait, Terry Pratchett, and needed to buy a gift for a niece, and so got her a different Terry Pratchett book uh, for Discworld immediately for that. Um, And I hadn't read that book, but I had full confidence that it doesn't matter. I think for any of these Discworld books in some ways, (laughs) it doesn't matter where you start. There's lots of recommendations you'll have. And I think depending on where you are in your stage of life and depending on like what kind of vague backdrop you want, that may influence where you pick it up. But at least for the three novels I've read so far from Terry Pratchett and the Discworld series, they're all, when it comes to it, similar enough. It's just, do you want to be in this kind of quote unquote, far flung, but not really kingdom? Do you want to be in the big city? Do you want your main characters to be witches? Do you want your main characters to be members of the city watch? Do you want your main character to be death? Fine. Pick one of those and go. And I think you'll enjoy it. And if you don't, then it's not for you. But I also think that you'll know a good chunk of the way through the book. Oh, is this not working for me at all? Or is it not working for me today? And I wonder for those reviewers from Publish Weekly and Kirk, uh, if it's Kirkus Review and Publishers Weekly, I wonder if it was just – they had to get through a stack of books to do the reviews and they read it on the day when they didn't need this. And if you're in a hurry, don't read this book. <laughs> but for me, I, I definitely – I need it reminded me that I really like Terry Preston's writing and I like what little Discworld I've engaged with. I definitely am gonna engage with more. Uh Glenn, as you said, humor is not something that generally you like. So are you definitely gonna put Discworld in your rotation? Another book or two?
0: I, I am I as I said I'm I'm eager actually to check out the the Discworld uh, adaptation or riff on Macbeth Macbeth is actually something that I have been wanting to cover in some way somewhere on the the network somehow and so reading this book and loving this book so much made me think that that's something that we should try to do as a network is put together some series on Macbeth. I mean, that's not likely to happen here in 2022, but at some point in the future where we could cover Macbeth in some way, uh, you know, as the actual text of the play, uh, and then look at other things that, that, uh, and then look at places where Macbeth has shown up and other speculative fiction. And, uh, maybe even you and I, then Brent could, uh, could finish that all up by engaging with something else that mattered a lot to us, certainly in our adolescence, which is the Coen brothers, because, uh, one of the Coen brothers has just recently made a Macbeth film that I haven't had a chance to check out. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, that's definitely something that I would love to try to do, but even though I don't get to do much reading that is not for podcasting or for, uh, for teaching, uh, I think even if those plans never come to fruition, uh, I would like to check out some more Discworld and something I did see when I was looking through the, the list of books in the Discworld canon, uh, is that there is actually some short fiction, which I think is something that we could manage to do on the network it's certainly Terry Pratchett as someone who has co-written a book with Neil Gaiman, I think as well within the purview of this show. And so I think as it, as it suits us, or perhaps as it suits our, uh, our voters on Patreon, we might cover some Discworld short fiction from time to time here on the show as well.
1: And I think that I would definitely welcome that. I would think real carefully about when I would be reading it in any given you know, week, but uh, I would definitely welcome it uh, if it's something that our patrons are interested in or um, if we just decide to do it as we decide to do it. Well, I think
0: that if we are making future plans, uh, that then is going to do it for this episode. But uh, I hope that our tone and our praise for this book have conveyed already the thanks that we we genuinely owe to the Patreon supporter who commissioned this episode. But let me actually put that into words now and say thank you again so much. Uh, The support is so important to the health of the network, as Brent said at the top of the show. But really, thank you for having us read this book. This book was awesome. My life is better for having read it, and I'm so grateful for it. And uh, I'll sign off now by saying, and
1: I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt, and I'm also thankful have for having read this. You can find us and our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com. And- I think we've said it a few times already that
0: uh, this or that episode is the last one that we're doing before we get started with Sandman Season of Mists. But no, no, this really is it. This really is the last episode that we're going to do. If we get any more commissions, in the meantime, they'll air after Season of Mists. And we will be back with the first episode on Season of Mists on May 12th. And until then, pleasant dreams.